0: The United States, Brazil, Indonesia, Ecuador, Russia, Japan, Mongolia, Malaysia, the Ukraine, Colombia, China, Argentina, Ghana, India, Iran, Kazakhstan, Israel, Latvia, Paraguay, Serbia, Hong Kong, Iraq. Taiwan, Portugal, Saudi Arabia, Bangladesh, Thailand, Venezuela, Denmark, Nigeria, Peru, Canada, Kenya, Pakistan. All of those countries have visited our website this week. Isn't that fabulous? And I'm, I'm telling you that because... A, it was surprising. We've had countries like that visit our website before, never that many in one week. 35 countries this week visited our website. And I tell you that because it's an encouragement that the work of the Lord goes around the world. That's six downloads just in Pakistan this week of our messages. And it shows the opportunity that we have as we stand for truth and as we serve as a church, not only here in southeast Wisconsin, but but the opportunity to spread around the world. And I tell you that because I want you to be praying. And I want you to be encouraged by that. That this church is not just this room. This church now is starting to to spread throughout the whole world. I, I can't imagine some of these countries. I don't know how people in Mongolia found out about us. Unless you guys have relatives in Mongolia. I, I know nobody has relatives in Iran. But Israel and Saudi Arabia and Bangladesh and, and Kenya... It's just exciting. So let's continue to be humbled by what the Lord's doing and continue to be in prayer, okay? Let's take our Bibles and turn to the book of Jeremiah. Jeremiah chapter 13. I, at the start of the week, did not plan on preaching this text at all, but the Lord has interesting ways of leading us and he led me to this text. You know, a week ago, our our nation's future direction was still up in the air. Hard to believe it was just a week ago, right? And Tuesday gave us very clear picture of where we're headed and what it means for those seven issues that we've studied over the last few weeks. It's been really interesting to see how quickly um, things have progressed and how some of the implications of the election are already starting to take shape. And And I want to just give you a little picture of what's happened just since Tuesday, in case you haven't been watching it or you've just decided to take a break from the news. I'm just... Happy that they aren't calling my house anymore. Um, but let me just give you a little picture of what's happened just since Tuesday because it'll set up what we're going to study this morning. Hours after the election, the United States backed a uh, United Nations Committee's call to renew debate over an international treaty to regulate the global arms trade. The UN General Assembly's Disarmament, Disarmament Committee quickly approved a resolution calling for new talks to fight illicit arms trafficking and proliferation to protect the sovereign right of states to conduct a legitimate arms trade and meet their concerns. Now, a lot of people are concerned about this, even though that the committee says they will not accept any treaty that infringes on the constitutional rights of our citizens to bear arms, and that it won't affect domestic sales um, because it only applies to exports. And yet, what they're not telling us is that if the treaty is passed, it'll supersede the Second Amendment. United States uh, the United Nations will decide who gets to have what. Now, the United Nations is also talking about whether it should have the power to regulate the internet. That will go well, won't it? And they meet next month in Dubai to decide if they should have control of the web. Now, the stock market reacted on Wednesday to the election, dropping over 300 points in one day. Investors were probably concerned about all the new taxes that are coming. In Illinois, glad you don't live there this morning, taxpayers will pay for the state spending more than it has because the governor and lawmakers are about to sign a bill into law that will raise state income tax by 67%. And that is, in addition to all the other new taxes, just the health care law alone has 20 new hidden taxes, seven of which are put on all citizens... Regardless of income, we were told there would be no new taxes on anyone earning less than $250,000. I assume that's all of us, but that's actually not true because we have now the individual mandate tax, the medicine cabinet tax, the flexible spending account cap, the medical itemized deduction hurdle. I love the name of that one. It's a hurdle. It's not a tax. It's a hurdle. And then there's the HSA withdrawal tax hike, the indoor tanning services tax, that one's particularly rough on me, and the excise tax on comprehensive health insurance plans, which basically means you're going to pay 40% more for having your health insurance. Then there are other taxes like the tax on medical device manufacturers and huge increases on capital gains and taxes on dividends. Now, not surprisingly, layoffs have already started to happen at many companies, then there's the Middle East. I don't know if you saw this. We've allowed Islamic extremists to come into power in the Middle East. I turned on my TV Friday morning and I heard chanting like a crowd at an English soccer game. What it was was 10,000 Muslims in Cairo who were rallying to demand that the Egyptian constitution be written according to Sharia law, which is the Islamic uh, law that demands everything done be done according to the Quran. Last week, Iran sent two fighter planes to shoot at one of our drones, even though it was over international waters. This was essentially an act of war days before the election, but we were never told about it, and Governor Romney was never briefed on it. And then there were the sobering polls. The day after the election, 65% of Americans said things will not get better in our country, and the traditional values will continue to erode. And we saw a couple months ago that 20% of Americans now say, They have no religious affiliation. That's the highest ever. Now needless to say, it's been an interesting week, right? Needless to say, we look at that and especially among Christians, there's a lot of different perspectives on how we should feel, how we should react, and what all of this means and what will happen now other than us paying an exorbitant amount of taxes. Some Christians are very pessimistic. Some Christians are... Are, are, are deeply discouraged. They believe that we're headed into great difficulty and that the Lord is going to use this to discipline our nation for rejecting Him. They may be right. Others say, well, things aren't really that different. It's always been bad. This is just another another layer of what's been happening in the world for years and and we shouldn't overreact. Others take more of a non-reactive approach and and say, well, God's sovereign and He's going to do whatever He wants no matter what's going down on Uh, down here, and, and that's absolutely true. And yet, our first passage this morning reminds us that while God is in control, and while God put rulers in place, and while God can do whatever he wants, he also strongly disciplines people's rejection of him. He deals with it when people are defiant in their disobedience. And yet, at the same time he says that, we also know that he is gracious and compassionate and slow to anger and rich in love. He's not surprised by what's going on. And he always will give an opportunity until Jesus returns. He will give an opportunity for people to get right with him and be restored to relationship with him. Now that leads us to Jeremiah chapter 13. Because God told the nations around Israel In Jeremiah chapter 12, and we saw that map a couple weeks ago. Remember all the nations that are surrounding Israel, and it was that little red dot in the middle? That's always been true. Nations around Israel have always hated it. So God says in Jeremiah chapter 12, I'm going to warn you. I'm going to uproot you, and I'm going to deal with you for striking at Israel. But in the same breath that God says that in chapter 12, He says, but I will have compassion on you. I will have compassion on you if you reject Baal and you start to trust in me. But if you don't, chapter 12, verse 17, if you don't listen, I'll destroy you. And then he turns his attention to Israel. And he says to Israel, he says to Jeremiah, the prophet, who is speaking to Israel, he says, tell the people, warn them about their pride and their stubbornness. Let's read what he says here in Jeremiah 13, starting in verse 8. Then the word of the Lord came to me, saying, Thus says the Lord, Just so will I destroy the pride of Judah and the great pride of Jerusalem, this wicked people who refuse to listen to my words, who walk in the stubbornness of their hearts, and have gone after other gods to serve them and to bow down to them. Let them be just like this waistband, which is totally worthless. For as the waistband clings to the waist of a man, so I made the whole household of Israel and the whole household of Judah to cling to me, declares the Lord. They may be, for me, a people for renown, for praise, and for glory, his glory. But they did not listen. Therefore, Jeremiah, you're to speak this word to them. Thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, every jug is to be filled with wine. And when they say to you, do we not know very well that every jug is filled with wine? Then say to them, thus says the Lord, behold, I'm about to fill all the inhabitants of this land, the kings that sit for David on his throne, the priests, the prophets, and all the inhabitants of Jerusalem. I'm going to fill them with drunkenness and I'll dash them against each other. Both the fathers and the sons together, declares the Lord. I will not show pity, nor be sorry, nor have compassion, so as not to destroy them. Now, I will grant you this morning, this is a strange passage, isn't it? And the context here is, is a little odd, but I need to explain it, what happens in verses 1 to 7. The Lord tells Jeremiah, I want you to go buy a waistband. I want you to buy a band that will wrap around your body. I don't want you to wash it. Which means that the more Jeremiah wore it, the more he walked around, the dirtier and smellier it got. Then God said to Jeremiah, I want you to go to the Euphrates River, which was east, and I want you to take the waistband and hide it in a rock. So Jeremiah does that. Long time passes, and God says, now I want you to go back to the Euphrates. I want you to find the waistband, and I want you to dig it out. So Jeremiah does that. He goes back, and he gets the waistband, and he digs it out, and it's completely ruined and totally worthless. And God says, this is an illustration. This picture here is to illustrate what has happened to the nation of Israel. They have become deeply proud. They've refused to listen to me. They have become stubborn and they have worshipped false gods. And God says, I made them like a waistband. I put them around me. I let them cling to me so they would be my people and I would get glory for how great and wonderful and merciful I am to them. But instead of being grateful for that, instead of declaring my name because I've been so gracious, instead they've become completely dirty. they become full of sin, and now they're worthless, full of arrogance and selfishness, and they have disregard and contempt for me. Now, we might say to ourselves, because we see this throughout Scripture, we might say, all right, well, Israel blew their chance, Israel disregarded God, they were arrogant, they were contemptful, so we would expect God's going to punish them. That God is going to be very direct and very strong, that he'll probably allow them to be defeated by another nation and and maybe taken into captivity like we're going to see later and this is just about to happen. Not because God is harsh, not because God is unfair, but because they had so fully squandered his blessing and because they had dishonored him publicly. But what the Lord says here in verse 13 is very unexpected. At least it was for me. And I think it's very, very insightful for us. In verse 13, the Lord says, I will fill all the inhabitants of the land with drunkenness. He's not speaking literally about alcohol. He's talking about their minds. I will fill all the inhabitants of the land with drunkenness. And what does that mean? It means they'll be confused. It means they'll lack in good judgment. It means they'll be in conflict with each other. Now, before we develop that a little bit, notice to whom he says that he will do this. It's right here in verse uh, 13. He says, I will fill with with drunkenness of the mind the kings that sit on David's throne, which was eternal, the priests who are the religious leaders, the prophets who are God's messengers, and all the citizens of Jerusalem, which was God's city, which was where his presence filled the temple. In other words, all the people that had had God's favor and God's blessing and had, had seen God's hand at work They're all going to be spiritually and emotionally confounded. Not because God is is being mean, but because that's what they desired. That's what they chose. They had been intentional in their lives about being filled with, with anything other than God's spirit. They had gotten drunk on themselves and full of themselves and and wanting what they wanted. And they had disregarded God and they had mocked him and they had worshipped Baal and they had looked to other things and become materialistic. Everything about Israel at this point, as Jeremiah prophesies, is anti-God. And God looks at them and says, look at all the things I have done for you. Look at how I've blessed you. Look at how I've given opportunity. Look at how I've been gracious. And instead, you have said, we don't care. We want to be full of ourselves. And God says, fine, if you don't want to be full of my spirit, then I'll allow you to be full of yourselves. But that's going to make you drunk. That's going to confuse you. You're going to wander around. You're not going to know what's going on. Listen, sin always does that. It blinds the heart and the mind. And it impairs our reasoning And it puts us in conflict with other people. But more than anything, sin causes us to have disrespect and disregard for the Lord. So God looks at his people and he says. Fine. You want to be drunk with yourself? I'll make you drunk with yourself. But let me tell you what I'm going to do. Look at verse 14, because he says something here that is both. Very sad and very sobering. He says, I will not show pity, nor will I be sorry, nor will I have compassion, so as not to destroy them. In other words, God says, I'm not going to act. I don't think there's any place worse to be than when God doesn't act. God says, I'm not going to do anything. I'm not going to judge you. I'm not going to eliminate you. I'm not going to show you any mercy. In other words, what God's saying is, I'm going to let you just drift in the wind for a while. I'll let you stumble along and bump into each other and have no clear direction. You should have clarity and you should be seeking truth and you should be looking for my help and my salvation, which I'm perfectly willing to give to you. But you know what? Because you're not, because you're not even bothered by that, because you're so drunk with yourself, because you're blissfully stupid, and you're content in the moment, and you don't want to think about anything down the road in the future. Because of that, I'm going to stand back, and I'm going to watch. Now, as I read that passage this week, and again, I had no no intention of doing Jeremiah 13 this morning. As I read that passage, I thought, if there's ever a description of our country, this might be it. Listen, the condition of man never changes. It just takes on different looks and and has different cycles. So what's happening today shouldn't be surprising to us because it's not new. It's happened throughout generations and nations but that doesn't mean it shouldn't sober us. I was thinking this week, and I think the Lord gave me this, about what we've learned at, over the last week as we have watched what's happened from a biblical standpoint. This is not meant to be a judgmental opinion. This is just the facts. I, I, I think we can, can reasonably infer based on what we see in our nation right now. We can reasonably infer based on the evidence, that these five things are true. Let me give you five things. First of all, people want to ignore the truth. People want to ignore the truth. Most people would rather feed on what they want to hear than what really is. Now listen, this is why the news is so biased. Not because they're liberal or conservative. The reason the news is so biased is because at the end of the day, It's all about money. And if you have people's approval and attention, you'll have their cash. So the media and the news outlets shade and slant the truth, or at worst, they hide it and they criticize people to talk about it. In some ways, American churches have taken the exact same approach, except instead of money, we're craving attendance and popularity. So we hide the truth, we negotiate the truth, we, we soft sell the truth, we ignore the truth. Because at the end of the day, people in their carnal state don't really want the truth. Second, what we've learned is that ethics really don't matter that much. Ethics don't matter. Now, if you don't believe that, explain why a congressman from Illinois got re-elected even though he had an affair, misused campaign funds, and hasn't worked for six months. Or explain why an Illinois state senator, Illinois is kind of messed up right now in case you didn't notice, why an Illinois state senator got reelected even though he's been indicted for taking bribes. We even have two dead people that won re-election by huge margins in Florida and Alabama. Ethics don't matter. Third, the definition of morality has changed. This is no longer a question. This is no longer, well, we hope that, that, that it's not really going on. Gay marriage laws passed in Maryland and Maine, and recreational marijuana use was approved in several states. And now, with conservative Supreme Court appointments out of reach for the next four years at least, millions of babies will be aborted. Laws like this will continue to pass, and it will become mainstream and typical until a biblical stance is seen as outlandish. Four. Four. We're selfish. There's a shocker, right? I know that one's like, wow, I never thought of that one before. We're selfish. With a national debt that's spiraling out of control, unemployment's high, foreclosures at an all-time record, do you know what the important news was that everybody's excited about that I heard all over the radio this week? Everybody's excited that Black Friday's 12 days away. In fact, it's not 12 days away, it's 11 days away because one store that will remain unnamed is opening at 8 o'clock Thanksgiving night, two hours earlier than last year because of customer demand. We live for now. We're not worried about how it'll affect our children, even though the national debt responsibility for each taxpayer is over $110,000. But we are a tangible self-indulgent, instant gratification society that wants more stuff. And at the same time, that's true. Number five, we live in a victim society. Now, again, this is not my opinion. This is reality. There's a radical de-emphasis on personal responsibility. We want government and corporations and everybody else to bail us out of our mess. We even want God to do that. If you want a reason why biblical Christianity is not drawing crowds, it's because the gospel doesn't say God will just bail you out. Listen carefully now. The Bible doesn't say you can do what you want and God would bail you out because that kind of theology would absolve us of repentance and confession and humility and brokenness and faith, not to mention requiring no responsibility post-salvation. Instead, we have to understand that God proved his love through the sacrifice of Christ for our sins, the victory Christ won in defeating the grave. Now he offers to us, he is willing to save us. When we trust in him, he will save us completely. But it doesn't stop there. He says, now that you're mine, now that you've received my grace, which you don't deserve, now I am telling you, you must deny yourself daily and live like Christ. So to be true to the gospel, we can't treat people like victims. I was not a victim of my sin. I sinned and continue to sin intentionally. Sin was not something, oh, I couldn't help it. I didn't know what to do. I, 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 I misunderstood. No, sin is intentional. I don't mean to be harsh in saying that. That's just the reality. Sin is intentional. So we're not a victim. We're accountable. We have to answer to God. But thanks be to God for His unspeakable gift, right? Right? Because He's willing to forgive. He's willing to redeem. He's willing to secure us as His own forever. How does that fit with Jeremiah 13? Because God is saying to His people, look at what I have done for you, and look at what grieves me. In verse 15, He calls all people to really hear what he is saying. Listen and give heed and don't be haughty, for the Lord has spoken. Give glory to the Lord your God before he brings darkness and before your feet stumble on the dusky mountains. And while you're hoping for light, he makes it into deep darkness and turns it into gloom. But if you will not listen to it, my soul will sob in secret for such pride and my eyes will bitterly weep and flow down with tears because the flock of the Lord has been taken captive. He is saying every person needs to get their heart right before the Lord and give him the glory that he's due before the darkness descends on mankind. Now, I want to explain this. This is a very powerful picture of the warning that God gives that judgment on sin will come. And as I read those three verses, it seemed even more relevant and timely than ever. By His grace, God always gives a warning. He always says, Judgment is coming. The time is short. You need to be prepared. You need to get your heart right. I'm going to do something. Every time He gives judgment, even to the end of days, God gives us His Bible and He says, I'm telling you, this is coming. This will happen. Nations will collapse antichrist will rise up people will defy me there will be the mark of the beast i will come i will judge israel will be restored i will reign. god tells us everything that's going to happen so he's warning us and warning them right here recognize it before it's too late recognize it before the darkness descends see judah uh, jeremiah lived in the last years of judah 25 years, he's called the weeping prophet. He walks around and does anything he can to try to get the attention of the people, to try to say, God's judgment is coming, Israel, Judah. God's going to deal with you. He's going to take you away. You need to be ready. You need to forsake the idols and repent of your sin. But what did they do? They ignored him. When he got up to preach, the room was empty. When he walked around, people turned aside. He would even do little creative things to try to get people's attention. And people would just completely ignore him. Then after 25 years, he watched Jerusalem and the temple be destroyed by Nebuchadnezzar. He couldn't say God didn't warn them. So look back at the verses. I know this is heavy stuff this morning. Look at what he says. Before the darkness comes. Before your feet stumble on the mountains. While you hope for light. But he's going to make it even darker. Listen to the Lord and give heed. Verse 17 is, is to me one of the saddest verses in the Bible. But if you won't listen. Now, he's talking to God's people here. He's not talking to to people that don't know the Lord. He's talking to God's people. He says, if you won't listen, here's an amazing concept that shows the heart of God. He says, my soul will sob in secret that your pride is so strong, and my eyes will bitterly weep because his flock has been taken captive." Can you imagine that? I mean, that's a picture of God we've never seen before. God says, I've warned you. I've told you how to live. I've shown grace to you. I've been merciful. I've been near you. I've helped you. Israel, Judah, you haven't stayed faithful. You've rejected me. Now, I'm going to give you another warning and another chance. But I'm telling you, if you won't listen, People of God, if we won't listen, God says, in secret, I will be sobbing. My soul will be torn apart and and wrenched, and I'll weep and sob that you have been proud and stubborn and haven't listened. Now, again, that's written to his people. Now, what do we do with that? Why does the Lord give us this text this morning? Well, as Randy alluded to earlier, rather than being disturbed or concerned or or nervous or indifferent about the future, I believe what God is telling us is that we first need to be humbled and broken over the possibility that we have stopped listening to the Lord. We get all worked up before the, the election and we're talking about the issues and then what happens? We're five days out. Are, are we still as concerned? Are we still as disturbed? Are we still worried about the biblical stance that we're supposed to take? Or is it like, well, what can we do? I've heard more than one person say that the American church is culpable for our spiritual and political position and I have to say that I agree with that. Overall, the American church has been passive. It's failed to stand firm for the Lord and for biblical convictions. Instead, we've chosen to compromise and go after what's popular and expedient. We have gotten clever. We have gotten so enamored with ourselves and our strategy that we can't stop patting ourselves on the back. And you know what? That cleverness has meant that Jesus wasn't wonderful to us anymore. Holy Spirit's been marginalized and misrepresented. Prayer's been de-emphasized and disparaged. And faith and dependence has been replaced by paradigms and marketing. So what do we do? As a church, what do we do? Turn over to Ephesians 5 for a minute. I believe as a church we have Stayed faithful, but we always have to be aware there is room for growth and there is room for greater dependence on the Lord. Ephesians 5 describes how we can get back to where we need to be. This passage and the other one we're going to read in a minute, 2 Timothy 4, describe those five things that we've learned this week. And the passages tell us that those five things are indicative of the last days. So each of these two passages calls us to action as believers. Look at what Paul says. It's going to be a lot. We'll just touch on it here. Ephesians 5, start in verse 6. Let no one deceive you with empty words. For because of these things, the wrath of God comes upon the sons of disobedience. Therefore, do not be partakers with them. For you were formerly darkness, but now you're light in the Lord. Walk as children of the light. For the fruit of the light consists in all goodness and righteousness and truth, trying to learn what's pleasing to the Lord. Don't participate in the unfruitful deeds of darkness, but instead even expose them. For it's disgraceful even to speak of the things which are done by them in secret. But all things become visible when they're exposed by the light, for everything that becomes visible is light. For this reason, it says, this is speaking to the church now, Awake, sleeper, arise from the dead, and Christ will shine on you. Therefore, be careful how you walk, not as unwise men, but as wise making the most of your time because the days are evil. So then don't be foolish, but understand what the will of the Lord is. Now, the enemy's attack is always to deceive. The enemy always wants to deceive, which is why his two main jobs are to lie and to accuse. Verse 6 tells us that empty words make us drunk. All the lying promises, all the appealing advertising tells us that life can and should be something that we don't have yet. It tells us that if we just do this or buy this or drink this or hang with these people, that life will be greater than we can possibly imagine. And it never delivers. But desiring those things, the text says, Leads us to living for them. Which means that we walk back into darkness. We walk back into bondage that Christ has freed us from. Christ has freed us from bondage forever. Everybody say amen. God has freed us from bondage forever. And yet when we sin, we walk right back and close the jail cell and say, this is where I want to be. God says, uh uh-uh, live in the light. Don't live in darkness live in the light. Not only should you not participate in sin, but you shouldn't even think about it or talk about it. It's disgraceful to even joke about it. Instead, expose it. And in the meantime, he gives a challenge to every believer in verse 14. He says, wake up. One thing I loved about the last six, eight months is that it energized believers to look at the issues. But I wonder how long that will last. Remember after 9-11, everybody went to church. Oh, we got to get right with the Lord. What's happened? Our country is falling apart. We, 60, 70% of the country went back to church. Within six months, back to normal. Will we stay energized? Will we stay passionate about it? As biblical values are not supported, it'll be easy to get discouraged and even resentful. But that's not what the Lord's called us to do. Look at what he says in verse 15. He says, be careful how you walk, not as unwise men, but as wise, making the most of your time because the days are evil. I like the words of the King James a little bit better because they're more descriptive. He says, see that you walk circumspectly, not as fools, but as wise, redeeming the time Because the days are evil. The concept is, and you've heard this before, is as we walk with the Lord to look all around us and make sure that we are not being caught in a trap that is set by sin. Make sure we're not being snagged. Make sure we're not being tripped. Fully aware of the lure of sin and how easy it is to stumble back into darkness. But it's not just about careful avoidance. It is an intentional, purposeful, proactive obedience that offsets the power of sin. So he says, walk circumspectly, look around, make sure you're not tripped up. But there's a second part of it. The second part of it is to redeem the time. That means by every moment that you have. Value every single second that you have. Not selfishly, not distracted, but with the goal of being godly. I remember my brother said to me when my kids are born, he said, Paul, value every day. You're not going to believe how fast they're going to be 18. And I listened to that. And Julie and I intentionally said, we are going to value every single day. Now, some days I don't value as much as others when I make six trips to school. But you know what I'm saying? They go from six to 13 like that. I can't imagine 13 to 18. I can't imagine leaving home. So I'm looking at it and I'm going, I've got to redeem the time with my kids. How much more do we need to redeem the time with the Lord? Because the days are short. Listen, the Lord's not far away. It could happen today. And if you don't believe it, then your head's in the sand. Time is short. And look at what he says. The days are evil. Ah, it's harsh. Come on, Paul. That's judgmental. What's the opposite of evil? The opposite of evil is holy. Could we possibly even fathom to say the days are holy? Redeem the time by every second. Value each moment for the Lord because the days are evil. If anything, we have seen just how much the Bible has nailed The description of what this time will be like. Look at one more thing. Turn over to 2 Timothy 4. You know this passage well. We won't take long with it. But we have to read this. 2 Timothy chapter 4. This is an even more descriptive statement of what we are going to see in the days ahead. Not because of a politician not because of a government. Don't get me wrong. I'm not politicizing this morning. We are going to see this because this is what's going to happen. I solemnly charge you, verse 1, in the presence of God and of Christ Jesus, who is the judge, the living, and the dead, and by his appearing in his kingdom, preach the word. Be ready in season and out of season. Every one of us can do that. Reprove, rebuke, exhort, With great patience and instruction. Every one of us can do that. But the time will come. And it's here. When they will not endure sound doctrine. But wanting to have their ears tickled. They will accumulate for themselves. Teachers in accordance to their own desires. And they will turn their ears from the truth. And will turn aside to myths. But you believer. Every person who trusts Christ. Be sober in all things. Endure hardship. Do the work of an evangelist and fulfill your ministry. Now we've quoted verse 3 many times. But look at it again, especially in terms of what we saw during the campaign. The attempts to meet all the desires of the people by saying and doing whatever it takes to gain their favor. By promising what can't be delivered by lying about what the real agenda is. This is a page straight out of the enemy's playbook. And it is effective because it works. Because people fall for it constantly. Now what the enemy wants to do is to go after us as believers and to convince us that having our emotions satisfied and and our desires fulfilled by others is more important than God's word and how we're supposed to live. His attack now against the church will be to crave earthly contentment instead of eternal contentment. Because if he can do that, it will corrupt the responsibility that goes with it. Look at the first phrase. He says, be sober. You remember Jeremiah 13, 13? I'm going to make you drunk on yourselves. He says, be sober. Endure hardship do the work of an evangelist, and fulfill the work of ministry. If there is anything that is apparent after this week, it is this, that instead of being discouraged and disheartened or trying to figure out where to go, now, church, believer, we need to double down on our calling and truly fulfill the work of ministry. We need to be serious about the state of the world and our place in it, We're not children anymore, physically or spiritually. The great generation of pastors and evangelists is starting to die off. And the question now is, who's going to stand in their place? Who's going to rise up and be that kind of believer? How do we do it? Look at the text. We need to model holiness. We need to live outwardly for Christ Not ashamed to love him. Separate from the world. Living by his word. Not needing to explain or defend our convictions. We need to be aggressive in sharing the gospel. Because it's good news. And it changes lives forever. In this room last Sunday, it changed somebody's life radically forever. We have a new brother in Christ. Because that's what the gospel does. We need to be faithful to fulfill the work of ministry. What God has called us to. Southeast Wisconsin, he's put us here. What does he want us to do? And how are we going to do it? Humble, full of love, ministering to people in need. This is how we fulfill the work of ministry. That word means to carry it to the end, persuading people to conviction. That's your job and that's my job and that's this church's job. To carry through to the end, persuading people to conviction. Listen, nothing short of a revival, and that has to start with the church anyway. Nothing short of a revival will change things and make them better because 2 Timothy 4 tells us they aren't going to get any better. And The devil is licking his chops right now Because he still doesn't believe the Bible. And he still thinks he's going to win. So our response is not to give up. It's not to be disheartened. It's not like the Israelites to be stubborn and selfish and sinful. It is to be awake. To keep one eye to the sky and one eye toward a darkened world as the darkness continues to descend To be a light to the darkened world, ready to work to the end and say to people, listen, it's getting dark, but there's hope. It's getting dark, but God's love and mercy is still there. He is willing to forgive. He is willing to transform, but the time is short. Church, we have work to do. We have work to do. And we need to get our hearts ready. Let's close our eyes just for a moment. I don't know what the Lord's saying to you this morning. I know some of the things that he's challenged me about this week. But even in... A time where the darkness is descending and it seems like the Lord is taking His hands off and is just sitting back and watching, I'm encouraged. Because I believe God is calling us to something very significant. And I want to encourage you right now this morning between you and the Lord, Nobody's watching. You're not going to come forward. You're not going to raise your hand. Just between you and the Lord. How prepared is your heart? How prepared is your life for the work that God's calling us to? To continue to the end, persuading people to conviction. Believer this morning, church this morning, the time is short. God is calling us to stand for Him. And I want to encourage and challenge you this morning to get your heart ready for that. To crave the things of the Lord. To not be distracted to not stumble around in darkness because you're allowing sin to still have a hold on your life. To redeem the time, the days are evil. And whatever you need to do this morning between you and the Lord to redeem that time and to get your heart right, I encourage you right now to do that. This is a conversation between you and God. And God will equip us and make us ready if we're willing. Lord, we ask you this morning to break through our stubbornness. We ask you to break through our resistance. To break through the calluses of our heart that are formed by sin. Lord, we ask you to do a fresh work in our midst. Because we believe that you have called us to this work of ministry. Lord, whether that's with a family member or a friend or co-worker whether it's as a church in this area or even around the world. This morning, Lord, we couldn't imagine that 35 countries would be listening to us. But we ask you to do a mighty work through us. We ask you to prepare our hearts and get us ready for the work that's ahead. Lord, show us clearly, we pray. Give us wisdom. Give us direction as to what we should be doing. And Lord, it starts in our lives, it starts in our homes that we would be people that walk in holiness. Help us, Lord. Help us to do that. We thank you and praise you for your salvation, for your redemption, for your Holy Spirit who guides us. We ask you now to lead us. And that we would faithfully follow. We love you and we praise you in Jesus' name.